funny. I, I don't think I, I don't think I ever thought I would use a phrase like these young folks today. But you know, now now that I'm close to 55, I think I think that's not a, you know I think it's okay. Um, but you know what I, what I realized was these young folks today have no clue about the wild and dangerous age that you and I grew up in, right? Like, like when I was growing up, automobile back seats were used more as toddler observation decks than for actually sitting, right? Who stood on the back seat? Come on now, I know, I know you did. Whose kids stood on the back seat? Okay, right? And I don't think I ever saw a seat belt, right? Um, we never wore helmets or knee pads or elbow pads when we rode bikes or skated. Uh, my brother and I ran around with metal cap guns loaded with the mini explosives right? And pocket knives so we could whittle sticks into spears to throw at each other. Uh, and and I, th I think I was eight years old when I played my first game of lawn darts <laughs> with my little brother, <laughs> with, with, with my grandmother herself being the one that handled out these metal projectiles and said, just be careful you boys don't poke your eyes out, right? And, and the reason I think that was such a common refrain among the elders of our generation uh, was truthful because some of the very best things we played around with as kids were pretty dangerous, <laughs> right? <laughs> I would never let my kids play with some of the stuff I played with. Uh, but which really is, I tell you that because it's kind of along the same lines as the advice our Lord is about to give today in our continuing look at his Sermon on the Mount. Advice about being careful about what we spend our time and energy and thoughts and intentions pursuing, lest we do not only permanent physical harm, but eternal danger to both our bodies and our souls. Uh, danger potentially so severe that it may take drastic measures to extract ourselves from, or else ultimately lead us directly to the fires of hell. And so we're continuing our look at the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I'm gonna be reading to you from Matthew chapter five, so I hope you have your Bibles with you if you open the word, so it's good that it's on the screen, but it's even better if you have your own Bible with you. And I'm going to be reading to you from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, and then I'm jumping down to 27 through 30. So listen for the voice of the Spirit. Seeing the crowds, uh, he, of course, meeting Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then, then dropped down to 27. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. Blessed Lord, who's caused all of Scripture to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear your word today that our hearts and minds may receive it and hold fast to all that you have for us today and show us Jesus in your word because we ask it in his name. Amen. <coughs> so uh, today we come to a portion of the Sermon on the Mount in a very distinct biblical doctrine on sexual purity that's often, I think, either overlooked or, or maybe outright ignored uh, and considered by many to be a topic that's too touchy to deal with from the pulpit, but you guys know we don't play that here, right? There's no topics off limit. 
Um, because when it comes to the topic of sexual immorality, we can't afford to be hit and miss with it. And brothers and sisters, there's no hierarchy or dividing line between the types. And, and, and sa I say that sadly because a lot of preachers seem to be all too happy to rail against the sins of sex homosexuality and transgenderism, but fail to mention the more, shall we say, socially acceptable sins of shacking up and premarital sex and adulterous relationships, as long as they kind of stay on the down low, right? But I think it's pretty clear that Jesus did not hold that point of view as he preached to the crowd on the mountainside that day. Uh, because, brothers and sisters, the truth is that heterosexual sin is every bit as sinful as homosex is, right? And my brothers of the church, I, I can promise you, if you and I were ever in to stray into sexual immorality, God is not going to look down from heaven and say, well, at least it wasn't with another dude, right? I can promise you that. And the reason for that is because living in sexual immorality, whether actual or just at the level of the thought life, is dangerous. And these passages deal with an issue that brings great damage and destruction to countless relationships and homes every single year. And I'm convinced that much of the problem we face in society is a direct result of silence from the pulpit. And I'll admit this is not a super easy topic to address, but it does need to be preached so that people will know what the Bible teaches and what God expects. And so my, my prayer is that as we move through these verses, I pray that all of us will be open uh, in our hearts and minds to the word so we can receive the instruction that Christ has laid out for us. So uh, maybe just to back up just a tiny bit for context in Jesus' thought process here. If you remember, <clears throat> last week we examined verses 21 to 26 of Matthew chapter 5, in which Jesus contrasts what the scribes taught about murder with what God says about anger and name-calling and slander. And as we saw, the scribes at least correctly repeated God's prohibition against murder given in the law of Moses. But remember, then they had reduced that by their tradition of only being liable to the judgment if you actually physically murdered someone. And Jesus exposes their false teaching by setting forth God's intention for the commandment and explaining that the origin of murder is the human heart and that it begins with the harboring and nurture of anger within it. Well, in the exact same way in our text today, our Lord Jesus, rather than stopping at the observing the mere letter of the commandment to avoid adultery, looks past the literal and into the intention of the heart. And so Jesus begins this section by pointing out, again, that the scribes had quoted the seventh commandment correctly. He says, you've heard it said, uh, as it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Which, we have to give them this, at least showed the scribes were concerned about what the Bible said. Uh, and, and it was their practice to study the scripture in detail. But where they failed was that they had made a separation between the heart and mind from the physical action performed. But they forgot that God can see their hearts. And that he's just as concerned about them. But the scribes had decided that they were totally righteous because they hadn't broken the seventh commandment in committing the mere physical act. Uh, and here's the flip side. Because the scribes were lawyers of the period, they were also pretty good at redefining what was and what was not physical adultery. Much like, I, I know younger folks aren't going to remember this, but remember former President Bill Clinton after his affair with Monica Lewinsky when he famously said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. 
because in his mind, he simply redefined the parameters of what sex is. And one commentator said of this, we live in a post-Clinton society and in the cultural aftermath of the 60s where adultery and fornication and shacking up and marriage-optional children are all taken in stride as normal parts of American life. And once that shame was removed, it was a very short step to the bravado of the even greater perversions of homosexuality and beyond. And he continues, so now in a society with this much sexual promiscuity and perversion, it would be relatively easy to think that God would be pleased with you by comparison if you simply remained physically faithful to your spouse. But we can't be like the teachers of the law and miss the point here. Yes, God does hate adultery, but Jesus didn't stop there, and instead he exposes the wickedness that can still live in our hearts. And he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lust for her has committed adultery with her in his heart. And see, that's a potential danger for everyone, right? Whether they're a married woman or unmarried. Because notice that Jesus uses the all-inclusive word everyone. And he doesn't distinguish whether the woman is married or not. He simply says, looking at a woman. And also, though, ladies, though Jesus uses the male as the example of the lust, that injunction applies to females that do the same. And we know that from our study in Bible study, the book of Proverbs, right? That we finished not too long ago, especially the ones from Proverbs chapter 5 and chapter 7 uh, that warn about the adulteress and the harlot. And so let, let's, uh, now that we have all that, so it's a lot to take in. So let's, let's back up and really think about what we're talking about here and, and what Jesus really means by that statement. Well, for one thing, he's not talking about noticing whether someone walking by is beautiful or handsome or not, right? It's not merely that. Uh, the word look here that Jesus uses means a whole lot more than a glance uh, or an incidental sight. The grammar here is present, active, participle, indicating a person that sees and then continues to look, right? It's a, a leer. You guys know what the word leer means? It might be a better description. Uh, one lexicon described it like this. It's called the intentional and repeated gaze the purpose of which is to satisfy the evil desire of the heart. Uh, which is why, uh, for you ladies, not just for my church brothers, but sisters as well, that pornography is so, so dangerous to engage in. And I, I could spend a whole sermon speaking about the evils of pornography and the damage that it's done to our society, uh, and particularly on our young men, uh, because of the way it's designed. And, and yes, it is designed. Uh, it's designed to rewire the neuroplasticity of the brains of men to make them less and less satisfied with real women that exist in the world who are, you know, not all airbrushed and instantly available, right? While at the same time programming men to need greater and greater quantities of that material to produce the same effect until they're caught in this vicious cycle of guilt and shame. But here's the thing. This concept is not just a trap for men. It's a trap for you ladies, too, because the sin of lusting after someone does not have to exclusively involve the eye to occur. Uh, this sinful look can also occur within the mind. You don't have to have actual pictures to create unhealthy images and fantasy relationships. And for the female audience, hey, that might come in the form of those, you know, those little red-covered paperback romance novels, right? How about big bestsellers like Fifty Shades of Grey? Somebody's reading that, right? Because the lust of the heart is the same whether it's sparked by something visual 
or merely in the realm of the verbal. It's all the same. And that really strikes at the core of what Jesus is saying. The problem with sin is it's not external, it's internal. The sin's in your heart. See, the problem is not that a guy sees a beautiful woman walk by and notice that she's beautiful, right? Praise God for that, right? Right, fellas? Can I get an amen? Right? <laughs> women were, listen, women were made as the pinnacle of God's creation, so their beauty should be acknowledged, right? The same way that strong and capable men attract the attention of women because the Bible says that the man is the reflected image and the glory of their creator. So it's not the noticing that's the problem. It's the covetous lust in the heart that's the issue. You might be thinking, okay, so okay, pastor, what am I supposed to do? Walk around with blinders on all day, right? Look down, go off and join a monastery or a convent so I never notice anyone that might catch my eye or make me have a passing thought. And the answer is no, of course not, right? Let's be real. But, but I do think the great reformer Martin Luther is helpful here because he said of this, and I love this quote, you cannot keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep it from building a nest in your hair, right? You can't keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can't stop if you had hair. You can't keep it from building a nest in your hair, right? And what he means is, no, you, you can't avoid seeing every sight that might entice you. You can't block every improper thought from going through your mind, but you can, with God's help, resist anything you see to just a glance instead of making it a fixed gaze. You can, with God's help, coax a thought to keep on passing through rather than concentrate on keeping it lasting. And why do we do that? Well, because it's pretty apparent that Jesus takes all this very seriously when he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to go to hell. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty serious to me. And also, let, like, please don't mishear me. Obviously, Jesus is not advocating self-inflicted injury here to avoid sin. Like, he's using hyperbole to make a point. Because when you think about it, really, honestly, just plucking out your right eye still leaves you a left eye you can sin with, right? And just cutting off your right hand still leaves you with the left hand you could sin with. So, but Jesus is being shockingly figurative here as a means of emphasizing the seriousness of sin. And he's saying, if there's something that's hindering you from living for, for living for God, whatever it is, it's better to be without it than to let it drag you into hell. Which really is a calling for us to sever ourselves from anything that is feeding our sinful desires, even though that thing may otherwise be valuable to you which means that anything that morally or spiritually traps you, those things that cause you to fall into sin or to stay in sin should be eliminated quickly and totally. And I don't know, you know, what your particular areas of temptation may be, but I can tell you that whatever it is, ditch it and do it now. Do whatever you need to do to set it aside, no matter how painful it might be. If you're in an immoral relationship, then end it. That's simple, regardless of how nice that other person might make you feel. If you have pornographic material, then get rid of it. Do it now. And do it in a way that neither you or anyone else can see it again. Shred it up or, or burn it. If it's in electronic form, then delete it so it can't be retrieved. If it's coming through the Internet, then get yourself some blocking software, even if it slows down your computer. 
this television that caused you to stumble, then admit it and switch it off. It's those pulp novels and best-selling books that glorify sin, then get rid of them and don't get any more. And for those of you who think that maybe, hey, you know, you get a little too radical, Pastor, uh, then you really don't understand the seriousness of sin or the condemnation and judgment and punishment that sin brings. And, and folks, eternity is a long, long, long time to be wrong about this stuff. But now you, you might also say, well, wait a minute, Pastor, you just said the problem's inside in the heart, and, and that it's the heart that's sinful, and now you're telling me to do something external. I, I, you're kind of confusing me. And you'd be right. Obviously, just getting rid of harmful influences is not going to change a corrupted heart into a pure heart. But just as the outward act of sexual immorality reflects a heart that's already adulterous, in the same way the outward act of voluntarily forsaking whatever is contrary to the will of God reflects a heart that's beginning to hunger and to thirst more and more for righteousness. And a heart that's beginning to consider whom you want to please, whether you want to please yourself or please God. Another commentator said on this, having acknowledged that we do not take Jesus' words concerning dismemberment here literally, uh, we hasten to say that we do take his intent literally. And he continues, don't try to explain away the seriousness of his meaning. He demands nothing less than absolute God-controlled self-mastery. And he finishes by saying, the cost of being a Christian is a willingness to forsake anything for God's sake to deal sternly with desires and willingly hold them in check under God's sway. And so, church, Jesus' sermon today is his way of telling us we must be willing to give up even our most prized possessions or aspirations or ambitions and wants if they in any way endanger our being pure before God. And his whole point in referencing our right eye and our right hand is because it's the eyes, it's the organ through which sinful thoughts can get stimulated. And it's the hand that we use to put sinful thoughts into action. And at the same time, they're two of the most valuable things that we have, right? The right hand and your right eye. And so Jesus' meaning is clear. The great 19th century theologian Albert Barnes put it like this. He wrote, even the dearest objects of life, if they cause us to sin or to be abandoned, no sacrifice should ever be deemed too great to secure cleanliness before God. To avoid sin, we must be willing to give up anything, including the most important and precious things in our lives. He says, discard favorite sights and sounds if they stir passion. Avoid entertainment, places, and reading material that make light of indecency. Flee vulgar, suggestive conversations and avoid sinful companions in circumstances that could facilitate our compromising ourselves. And though these things, he says, be to us ever so dear, never count the cost of holiness too high for us to pursue. Jesus did not count the, the cost of Calvary too high to pay for us. And brothers and sisters, all of this is not meant to put a guilt trip on you. Uh, this is not because God never wants his people to have any fun or that Jesus was a killjoy. If anything, Jesus' detractors accused him of having too much fun. And so in closing, I want you to just notice what Jesus says in the text, really calling our attention to his love and kindness. If you look in the middle of verse 30, as, as he's in the midst of warning us to avoid sexual sin, he says, for it is better. Other translations render it, it's, it's more profitable for thee 
or it's for your good. To practice self-denial in order to save ourselves from self-destruction. Because in that text, when it says, if your right eye or your right hand offend thee, we could literally read that, if it ensnare thee. It's like, like picturing an animal caught in a trap. And so far from just wanting to keep us from having any fun, Jesus is instead kindly warning us not to get caught in something that could take us down physically and spiritually. And so he's saying, godliness is to our advantage. And it actually promotes our truest self-interest because it keeps us in step with him. And for any of you, any of you younger folks that are listening online or, or here today, uh, if you've got somebody older in your life who'll be honest with you, I'll bet they'll tell you that one of the worst traps to fall into is the trap of thinking that God just wants to deny us good things and keep us from enjoying life. So you might as well just live it up now. Because the real truth is that by having that willing attitude towards sin, we are in essence saying our selfish desires are better for us than God's ways. And most of us, most of us with any age behind us have found out the hard way just how untrue that is. Because church, Jesus loves us. And he's speaking in the text here this morning on our behalf for our good. Self-denial, though painful for the present, is a blessing in the end. Sinful self-indulgence is our enemy. And though fun for the moment, the end seriously endangers and destroys lives, sometimes permanently. At church, the cost of being a Christian is saying no to ourselves more and more each day. We may have to lose a promotion at work. We may not be able to marry the person we think we want to marry. It may cost us a friendship. It might make people talk about us behind our backs. It may make us look priggish or foolish or holier than thou to the world, but who cares? Our calling is to take up our cross daily and to follow Christ and leave the consequences to Jesus. And I can promise you that you will never regret leaving anything behind if you set out to follow him. And the good news is you can start today or you can start over. With Jesus Christ, there's forgiveness of sin regardless of what you've done. The Bible tells us that every human being has sinned, that each of us is deserving of eternal punishment from God, no matter the sin, sexual or otherwise. We deserve to be punished, and it's all all or nothing scenario. God doesn't judge us on whether our good outweighs our bad or on who sinned worse than whom, but on whether we accept his way of salvation. And the Bible is clear on what that is. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. You see, folks, God made a way of forgiveness, not just for some types of sin, but for all types. And there's no sin that God cannot forgive you for, no matter what you've done. God will forgive you if you come asking him in faith. And so I say to you today in his name, stop playing around with the dangers of the world and the pleasures of sin. They may be fun for a moment, but they may also leave you maimed for eternity. And so in his name, I say repent and believe the gospel for the forgiveness of sins and do it today in Jesus' name. Amen. Father God, you promised to fully and, and totally and completely forgive any sins that we confess before you, Father. And I know we've already had an opportunity to do that in prayer, but Lord, if this is 
uh, stirred any of us, including myself, to recognize something that you're, you're pointing out in our lives, recognizing a failing that we have, recognizing a place that we haven't allowed you to be Lord over. Father, bring it to the surface of our minds and allow us, Father, uh, in the silence of our hearts to willingly confess it in this moment uh, and, and then receive that forgiveness and that pardon that can only come from you and from the death of your son. Uh, Father, strengthen us in our faith this week. Uh, guide us in the things that you would have us to do and the choices that you would have us to make. Uh, make us bold, Father, in making them where that boldness is needed. Uh, make us willing, Father, where uh, we may be hesitant. And Father, we just are going to thank and praise you for all that you're about to do in and through us in the week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.